Well, the title uh, of the talk was given, Is the Holy Spirit a Dove? That's a dumb title for this talk. Uh, titles for the talks are really irrelevant because what actually matters uh, is the passage. Uh, but uh, you could have gone with something like that. I think it's a, a title that might get people excited, uh, might get people interested, but at the end of the day, the title's a distraction. Uh, if you've been around churches, you would have seen uh, images of doves. Uh, they're used to represent the Holy Spirit, and it's based on passages like Matthew 3, uh, and there's a couple other similar passages where that imagery is used. But those images are a distraction. Really, uh, here's a far better title, I reckon, for this talk. Turn or burn. I think that's more appropriate to the content of this passage. Uh, So as we've been reading Matthew's Gospel, uh, there's something brewing just below the surface as Matthew strings together the account of what Jesus is doing. Uh, what he, he keeps weaving through it uh, a thread of Old Testament passages to fill us in on the significance of Jesus and what he's doing. And so it's important as we read to see what Matthew is saying to those original hearers, to Israel, the Jewish people, before we jump straight to us and what he's saying to us. Because when we're reading Matthew's Gospel, we're looking at the end of an era and the start of a new one. It's that changeover point. And so we need to see what Matthew's saying to Israel before we apply it to us. Uh, Israel were a puny little nation, one nation among many nations, and God had chosen them as his very own. God had redeemed them. He'd brought them out of slavery in Egypt and he'd brought them to their own little strip of real estate known as that they called the promised land. God called them to be his people, to be separate and distinct from the nations, to live a life trusting him and obeying the law that that he had given them through Moses. But here's the turn or burn question. Are they trusting God or not? Are they living lives of obedience based on faith? Or are they just doing their own thing? I see the life of Israel uh, has never been good for very long. Israel enters the promised land and though they live there for hundreds of years enjoying God's blessing, they are at the same time pushing the limits. They're flirting with idolatry. And instead of wanting to be distinct and different from the nations around them, they want to be like them. And so, after warning them time and time again, Israel is crushed and they're sent into exile. They're scattered like dust around the nations of the Middle East and Asia Minor, uh, mainly to Babylon. But God has made promises to his people. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, this is just before they entered, they've come out of Egypt, just before they enter the promised land. Uh, and Moses speaks to the people about life when they enter the promised land. And God promises them at the end of that speech through Moses that even if they find themselves scattered because of their disobedience, God will bring them home if they will humble themselves before him. 
It's that parent line. You know the door will always be open. You can always come home. And so God puts it this way uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 3. Uh, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart... Wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and he will have compassion on you and he will gather you again from all the nations from where he scattered you. It's never too late says God. If you want to find blessing, if if things have gone disastrously wrong and you want to find blessing again, then he says, take this lesson to heart. Turn back to me. Uh, Not just in a a cursory, I turned up at Christmas sort of way, uh, but heart and soul. They're in the middle of heart and soul. And Israel, after their exile, they come straggling back to a broken down city. And they patch up the broken down temple. And they go back to their old ways of ignoring God all over again. And the Romans come and they put uh, King Herod, the puppet king, in charge. Uh, And you'd look at Israel and you'd say, well, where is all this blessing? Where's the great kingdom of God that we've been hearing about? Where's the justice that's meant to flow out like a river, the righteousness that that they wrote psalms about? Where is it? If you turn back about three or four pages, back to the last page of the Old Testament, to Malachi chapter 4, we have these words. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. Surely the day is coming, Malachi says. It will burn like a furnace. And he's talking to to Israel after the exile, after they've returned to the land. And and they're saying, God, God, you need to step in and help us out. And Malachi says, well, if you're not careful, God's going to step in all right. But he's going to step in and wipe you out. He's saying all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That the day that is coming will set them on fire and there'll be nothing left. But for those who revere the name of God, it's healing time. For you who revere my name, there'll be rejoicing. It'll be like uh, uh, in verse 3 or 4 there, it says like the, little, like the little calves being let out of the stall, free at last. And so right at the end of the Old Testament, God's saying, remember. Remember the laws I gave you. Remember what I said when I first brought you into the promised land. And verse 5 and 6, the Old Testament ends, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And then we hit Matthew's gospel. But Elijah, the great prophet of Israel from the past, uh, the one who marched around in animal skin coat with hair on it, uh, who, who said to the people, make up your mind who you will serve. 
Well, he will be back. Or one like him will be back. And at that point, the people of Israel will have to make up their minds. It will be make or break time, turn or burn time. And so with that in mind, we meet John the Baptist. And so we come to the arrival of the voice. Sorry about the ordering of things in the notes for you note takers on the outline there. See, when you hear of someone in the desert on a funny sort of protein diet of locusts and wild honey and wearing clothes of camel hair, you're supposed to think Elijah. You're supposed to think that time with Elijah returning has come. And he comes saying, if you will turn back, heart and soul, I will bless you again. It's just like the promise that it's always been. And we see it unfold in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew says, here's the one the prophet Isaiah was talking about in chapter 40. And chapter 40 is a really important turning point in the book of Isaiah where uh, there's been all this judgment talked about that would come. And then from chapter 40 onwards, it starts talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah, the one who would come, suffer for your sins and restore you into right relationship with God, who would bring about the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom of heaven would come with him. Matthew saying, Here is that one. Here's the one preparing the way for him. Here's the Elijah-like one. It's time to start again, to turn back to God, heart and soul, because the kingdom is near. And you notice that what happens in those first five verses, the people are turning back, the people are, are flooding out to see John at the Jordan and be baptized by him. People from Jerusalem and all over Judea, Israelites from all over the place are coming and confessing their sins and having being washed by John in the Jordan River. But of course, then there's some others that come along. If you've been there, if you've been an average Israelite at the time, you might have been a bit surprised. Uh, because here come the guys that you've been brought up to respect. They're sort of the leaders among the religious people among the Jews, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that turn up in verse 7. Uh, it's hard to say whether they've come to be baptised or, or whether they're just coming to check out this new bloke and what's he's on about and what's his ministry all about. Either way, John launches into a huge tirade against them because the Pharisees and Sadducees are meticulously religious. Meticulously religious. They're the type that that can trace their religious pedigree, their religious history back many, many generations. They've been born into the right families. They've kept the rules. They do all the right things on the outside. The problem is they've convinced themselves that because of who they are and what they do, that everything's quite okay between them and God and their nation and God. They've convinced themselves that they're somehow untouchable because they've made the right steps and they've made the right moves. 
But when John sees them coming, he launches into them. Have a look again at verse 7 as I read it out. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Let me tell you, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit, it will be cut down and it will be thrown into the fire. Glad you you turned up to the baptism, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. Friends, the sign of repentance, there ought to be a fruit of repentance. Repentance isn't just going, I need to pull my socks up. So I think we often get caught thinking, I'm pretty good, I just haven't done very well. So we get to the new year and we go, I'm going to make this new year's resolution and that's like our thinking of repentance. So if I just, wow, pull my socks up, all will be well. John says, I don't need people that just pull their socks up. God can make people out of rocks. Archbishop Cramner, he was the guy that sort of created the prayer book and and, uh, set all the sort of foundations for how the Anglican Church worked. Uh, He wrote, and it was a big thing in their day, repentance was a really big thing in the 1500s because uh, the way that things used to operate is you used to rock up to the priest, say my socks have been down, I'm going to pull them up, and they would give you penance to do and you'd have some things to say or things to do and that would be it. Right? It's just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do the right thing, pull your socks up, make sure everything looks good and you're okay. But they went back to the Scriptures. And what do the Scriptures say? And Cramner put it like this. Repentance, I think I've got it there. Repentance is a pure conversion of a sinner in heart and mind from his sins unto God. See, repentance isn't pulling your socks up. It's a total change. A transformation. And that's when we talk about grace, it's a gift of grace, a gift of God. That we would return and change our ways. That our heart would turn from ourself and our sins and be turned to God. And what will naturally happen? It will naturally result in good works. But the question is, where's the heart? So we can all do good works. We can all do good things. But where is the heart? Is it heart turned from our sin to God or is it still in our sins? So rather than go through the checklist of pedigree, rather than go, have I been baptised and confirmed? Am I attending church? Uh, And whatever other earthly, churchly achievements you want to put on that list. The point John is making is Israel are like a fruit tree and it's been a long time since there's been any fruit on the tree and so it's coming time for pruning. Remember the old days when you would prune everything and you'd put it in the incinerator and then you'd light it up at the end of the day and it's Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon and the incinerator would be going, burning it all up before the days of green bins and 
all that sort of stuff. It's like Saturday afternoon and the incinerator going. That's what he says is coming. You're going to be cut off and cast out because there's not fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not a life of heart and soul changed towards God. It's the turn or burn. It's pretty clear. Verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Right? I baptize you with water, a sign, a symbol that you've turned back to God. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There is going to be a separation And it's not a matter of pedigree or being a descendant of Abraham or an Israelite. It's are you baptized with the Holy Spirit? Has that heart been turned from sin to God? Are you hungry for righteousness? Living rightly with God? Or are you still trying to prove yourself doing it your way? Because they're either going to gather, Jesus is going to gather the wheat into his barn, those who are hungry and thirst after righteousness, right living with God, or the rest are going to be burned up with unquenchable fire, fire that does not go out. Friends, what this John is saying, it's time for a new start, new rules. And the question to Israel is, which way are you going to go? And the question for us is, which way are we going? Have we repented with all our heart and soul? Or are we sitting here saying, in effect, I'm a Pharisee, I'm okay. I've got my socks pulled up far enough. At which point, Jesus turns up. It's interesting, John doesn't want to baptise the Pharisees because there's no fruit of repentance. And he doesn't want to baptise Jesus for the exact opposite reason. He says, well, you should be baptising me. Always a bit confusing, isn't it? Why would Jesus come and ask to be baptised as a sign of repentance? Because of all the people in the world, and we're going to see this over uh, the coming weeks as we keep working through Matthew, he's the last one you'd expect to front up. The only person who's lived in perfect submission to God turns up and asks for baptism, for the repentance of sins. But Jesus insists he's come from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised. And even though John tries to deter him, Jesus says, It needs to be this way. This is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. And John finally consents. Why? Why? We've throughout chapters 1 and 2 and the first bit of 3, and Matthew's been preparing it all for us. You know how today they can get x-ray machines and take them to the, the sort of classic old paintings of the masters and x-ray it and it shows you the, the, the pictures, the layers underneath of what's happened before that. Matthew's been doing that, just painting the pictures layer upon layer upon layer so that here 
in the person of Jesus, as we get to see the masterpiece, we see at last this is the true Israelite. Matthew's been laying the picture of the Israelite heritage, but here is the one true Israelite. Here is what the people of God should look like. It's an Israel of one. And remember last week, where did Jesus flee to? Because Herod wanted to kill all the babies, he went to Egypt. Where did God rescue Israel out of? Egypt. When they crossed into the promised land, it was through what river? The Jordan River. Jesus is now at the Jordan River, right? It's supposed to draw those links. Here is the one true Israelite. Matthew's connecting the dots for us. Jesus is doing what Israel was meant to do. He's being who Israel were meant to be. So if Israel is meant to turn back heart and soul, Jesus is up for it. He's come, not that he has to turn back because he's lived in perfect submission, but he's going to show, he's going to be exactly what Israel was always meant to be. And so Jesus comes and he's baptised. He shows that his heart and soul are turned completely to God because that is what Israel is meant to be. That is what we're meant to be if we are the people of God. And John baptises him and the Spirit comes on him and the voice from heaven says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He is the one pleasing to God. He is the one who walks with God. He is the righteous one. Here is God's son in water up to his knees, but right to the heart he is pleasing to God. Friends, I want to leave us with two things for us. Uh, Really two questions to ask. Uh, And really to think about, where do you sit? The passage is challenging us to be less like the Pharisees and more like the Lord Jesus. Less like the Pharisees, more like the Lord Jesus. See, you don't need a theology degree to see the sort of religious self-confidence that the Pharisees had. You can see that that's just not welcoming God's kingdom. All the good works, if they're not backed up by the fruit of true repentance, that heart and soul turn to God, all those good works stand for nothing. See, Matthew wants us to be clear. Anyone who wants to hide behind the veneer of religion while going on with a heart that is not turned to God, bearing no fruit of repentance. Anyone not bearing the fruit of repentance, the wrath of God is poised to fall on you. See, the way to God's blessing is to be less like the Pharisee and more like Jesus, to come with a contrite heart, religious pride, religious pedigree, has no place. It needs to be thrown out. The heart and soul need to be turned to God. 
so that we should be more like Jesus. And we'll see as Matthew unfolds the gospel, he stands alone as the one who is faithful, who against all the testing of the devil says, I'm going to keep trusting my father's word no matter what, who fulfills what Israel never could. And ultimately, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not satisfied with how things are, if you can see through your own religious pretensions, if you know you come up empty, come to me. Turn to me. See, ultimately, what did Jesus do? He came to suffer and die. The righteous one, the one who always lived in right relationship with God, would bear that unquenchable fire for your sins to give you his righteousness so that as we turn to him, he fills us. He gives us his spirit to dwell with us that we might have heart and soul turned to him. So we keep getting into trouble because we go, we want to pull up our socks and be better. And they keep falling down. But they don't keep falling down, they just drop down. That's why we need to come to the Lord Jesus and seek his mercy and his forgiveness. And you know what? As we do, that fruit of repentance will show through and that life will be happening even as we continue to struggle. So friends, don't worry about the dove symbols. Worry about the one in whom God is pleased. Worry about the one who carries the winnowing fork, the one who will clear his threshing floor, the one who will gather his people, his wheat, who will gather his people who bear the fruit of repentance. Worry about the one who will burn up all others with unquenchable fire. It really struck me hard this week. Wrath is coming because of our sin. Wrath is coming on you because of your sin. And the only way out is repentance, heart and soul. Heart turned from self and sin to Christ and the gospel. You know, people have a sense of Jesus. People can often tell you that Jesus saves us from our sin. Wrath is coming because of your sin. We can't be the one true Israel. We need to repent and turn to Jesus. He will baptize us with his spirit. He will make us his own children. And it will show in the fruit of the life that we live. Is the fruit of repentance showing in your life? Have you turned heart and soul to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith?